get full access to RFR only on Patreon. Become a member of the RFR Patreon community to get more Rebel Force Radio. Bonus shows and content are available right now only at patreon.com slash rebelforceradio. From Tops comes the all-new digital card collecting app, Star Wars Card Trader. For the first time ever, collect and trade everything from legendary 1977 Star Wars cards to new cards featuring exclusive content, all from the comfort of your mobile device. Star Wars Card Trader. These are the cards you're looking for. A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. This is Rebel Force Radio. Your source for the Force. Star Wars news and commentary. With Jason Swank and Jimmy Mack. I've seen Star Wars 500 times. Star Wars number one. This station is now the ultimate power in the universe. I suggest we use it. Now it's time for Rebel Force Radio. We would be honored if you would join us. Well, according to Ryan Britt over at uh, Inverse.com, he says the story of Star Wars at this point is more compelling behind the scenes than what's happening in the stars themselves. Well, you be the judge of that. We'll have more from Ryan. As he says, new Episode Nine writer proves... Only that the trilogy wasn't planned. He's referring to the sequel trilogy. And he's calling out J.J. and Lawrence Kasdan, etc. Saying these guys didn't commit. And that's one of the reasons why there's this uh, chaos and this need to bring in uh, Jack Thorne. Which uh, I always think it sounds like a, uh, sounds like a Batman villain. Yeah. Jack Thorne. Meanwhile, um, back in Jack Thorne's evil <laughs> hangout. <laughs> It sounds like a gangster, like kind of. Um, I think there was there was Rupert Thorne in Batman uh, the animated series, so I think that might be what I'm thinking about. But anyway, we're going to be covering that plus um, uh, some uh, highlights from uh, John Powell, composer John Powell, who's recently gotten the gig uh, for the Han Solo standalone film. Um, plus uh, more Last Jedi news, uh, some additional Han Solo. Uh, glimpses i guess we'll say in fact i want to i want to ask uh jimmy who's a real chewbacca aficionado how yeah, he feels him, about yeah. the, the 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 new chewbacca or at least the the han solo standalone film chewbacca that was um shown on i think it was twitter i think it was on twitter there, there was actually some video behind the scenes of of the han solo standalone chewy uh plus we've got uh, some uh, your voicemail leftover stuff from d23 things we haven't been able to get to and uh but you know more stuff that we're not going to get to it all guys that's just the way it is these days living in this world of um you know a new star wars film every year it's just a confluence of exciting things and we're happy to bring it with you here on rebel force radio for august 4th 2017 i can't do it alone of course not with me my good friend and yours from chicago jimmy mack hey jason hey star wars fans Holy rewrites, Batman! Yeah. 
Yeah, see, uh, uh, I, I don't know what this means for episode nine. Yeah. But uh, you mentioned that that writer indicated that uh, this just shows us that there was no true direction for the sequel trilogy to go in. Mm-hmm. Uh, I uh, really first started coming to grips with this when I realized that J.J. wasn't in for the long haul. He was just in for The Force Awakens. For some reason, I assumed that the sequel trilogy would be helmed by J.J. Abrams all the way through. For better or for worse. Um I don't mind the idea of having fresh blood coming in there for each film, a la the original trilogy. But when you're dealing with a story like this that depends on so many different threads coming together to create a solid narrative, we've asked this question before. Would Star Wars benefit from having someone there in the the driver's seat all the way through on a creative level? On a strictly creative level. Now, some people will point at Kathleen Kennedy and say, well, there's your person right there. But no, Kathleen is not part of that creative She's not a storyteller. Kathleen Kennedy, you know, for all that she is uh, wonderful at... It, she's not, and I don't think she would even claim to be. She's not a storyteller. She, she, she is the person that creates the environment in which storytellers can m- create their art, right? She's a producer. Um, and that's not the same thing as being a filmmaker or a storyteller. It was so different when George Lucas was the executive producer of the Star Wars franchise with guys like directors Irving Kirshner. And Richard Marquand working with him because George was a creative person thrown yeah. into that executive position. And don't forget, Kathleen- George, you know, the original plan for the, the prequels was that George was going to write the, or was going to direct the first one and then get out of there like he did with the original trilogy. And right. he kept going on. I think part of it. I don't know, Jim, correct me if I'm if I'm wrong here. Part of that reason. And maybe this has never been, you know stated but was the fact that uh he took so long getting the scripts ready and i i don't think that he could have necessarily uh been able to secure a director in that in that environment i don't think he could have had a steven spielberg waiting for a script you know up until i mean i think they were starting to shoot certain things certain aspects of um episodes two and three before the scripts were even completed Certainly true. I mean, from a logistical point of view, yes. And also it gives it gives George the flexibility back then to keep nurturing the story until it's where he wants it to be. He did have Rick McCallum hounding him a lot for that script. The art department really desperately wanted that script. Special effects really desperately wanted that, that script. But George took his time with it and would only just release little tidbits of information out along the way. Nowadays, with you know big corporate produced mega blockbusters, you can't get away with that sort of what would now be considered eccentric behavior. <laughs> you have to uh, be a cog in the wheel. And right. uh, at George Lucas's point in life in the 90s, he wasn't really ready to... Uh, give up that sort of creative control and executive control, the power that he uh, was able to, to wield during that era. So um, it's interesting that they bring in a new writer, though. I guess that, I mean, without raising so many red flags or anything, because I'm not going to do that, I just think that 
with Carrie Fisher's passing, that just really turned the whole pre-production process, as far as the storytelling end goes, upside down. And it just, maybe the story started going into a direction where the sensibilities of the guys who were banging out the script, Colin Trevorrow and his writing partner, they're banging out the script. They they realize maybe the, the where this is going would be handled in someone else's hands, you know, a little bit better. And and maybe even those guys brought in the new writer. Um, there's there's just so many story, you know, questions I have to ask, and I haven't. This is breaking news, essentially. Yeah. So I haven't had even time to really get to know the new writer, who's Jack Thorne. Yeah, um, British guy. Well, um, I I found it I found it very interesting that. In the Hollywood Reporter story that where this really broke, this was their exclusive um, back on August 1st. Um, they introduce uh, Thorne as uh, it, giving him, you know, citing his credits that he, uh, let's see, British TV series, including The Fades, The Castoffs, The Last Panthers, and National Treasure. Um <laughs> uh, what else has he got? Uh, blah, 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 blah. Uh, his Dark Materials, BBC's adaptation of the fantasy by Philip Pullman and Philip K. Dick's Electric Sheep, Channel 4. So he's he's definitely a certainly more well-known in the UK, but I feel like they buried the lead. Nowhere in this story did they mention that he wrote Harry Potter and the Cursed Child. I, I found it so odd. So Harry Potter and the Cursed Child, for those of you who don't know, is a is a play... Um, that continues the characters and situations created by J.K. Rowling. J.K. Rowling worked with uh, Thorne, as well as the director, whose name is escaping me, of, um, of Harry Potter and the Cursed Child, uh, to bring this to life. Um, Thorne has won, uh, Thorne and uh, uh, his two writing compatriots, including J.K. Rowling, they, they won the Olivier Award for Best Play this past year, and it's uh, going to be making a broad, its Broadway debut um, next season, it's been, you know, the, the production has been wildly acclaimed, but the story itself, the script is not without criticism. Uh, Jim, you did an entire podcast series about the Harry Potter films. Uh, you know that there is a, a deep mythology within that uh, franchise and that uh, those fans, perhaps not as particular, maybe, or as picky as Star Wars fans, certainly um, were split i guess you could say in their acceptance you've kind of got two camps you've got one camp that says we don't accept you know this story Mm -hmm. as canon even though jk rowling has said no this is canon uh and then you have the ones that 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 really enjoy it now my wife read it because i i was curious i have not read it yet i'm a big harry potter fan but i have not read the script um and she said that she felt, and she didn't use this term, but I, I kind of helped her through this because this is not a term that she would throw around. But she, based on what she was saying, she felt like it was a lot of fan service. It was like somebody combed through all seven of the Harry Potter books and said, we have to have a reference to every one of these books. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and, and sometimes it was cutesy. She did feel that the dialogue between the characters felt true uh, to the novels. Um, but... She agreed with what a lot of the critics said, that it feels like fan fiction. 
And this story here at uh, Inverse.com, very well written by uh, Ryan Britt, um, says that um, the addition of Thorne states or proves one thing in a pattern with the Star Wars sequel trilogy. There obviously was never a clear-cut plan for the story, ever. He says, this notion isn't a secret. The powers that be at Lucasfilm and Disney aren't hiding this idea. It's a simple fact. The creative direction of the new Star Wars trilogy has never been plotted out ahead of time. And he even goes on to talk about how, you know, at the end of uh, The Force Awakens, we see, you know, it's now quite iconic, Ray handing the lightsaber to Luke. And when J.J. called cut on that, that was it. J.J. and Lawrence Kasdan weren't committing um, the, uh, you know, the writers of episode eight and nine to anything. So consequently, you've got Ryan Johnson stepping in, uh, writing and directing eight. Colin Trevorrow and uh, his writing partner, Derek Conley, have been working on the script for episode nine, but said that a new fresh set of eyes was needed. And uh, it's unclear how extensive those rewrites are going to be. So enter Jack Thorne. And again, I'm just really surprised that they did not throw down the fact that this guy was an Olivier award-winning writer for a major franchise like Harry Potter. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, He was definitely one of three playwrights on that play. As I look up some information about it. Because I, I am really unaware of it. Now, you talk about how it's fan service and how th- some things are cute and everything. You have to understand, when you're developing a script for a play, you're, you're approaching it a little bit differently than you would for a movie. Because, in essence, the audience can often become part of the theatrical experience. You know, it's, it's the, the, the actors on stage sometimes feeding off the crowd, you know, and the crowd likewise doing the same. And so you might find different approaches being taken toward material when it's being adapted for the stage. And I I know that The Cursed Child was was written specifically for the stage, but it's taking the Harry Potter saga, essentially, and adapting it to, um, to a theatrical performance. And so I can cut it slack, for things like fan service or acknowledging at least each of the eight stories or books or whatever. Is it seven or eight? I don't know. They split one seven. of those books in half. Seven. Well, well with the, the movies, the, the movies it was eight. Half. Yeah, eight yeah. movies, seven books. Right. But um, it's, it's interesting to hear that uh, Harry Potter fandom kind of spirals into those weird places Star Wars fandom is spiraled into over all these years with the uh, camp saying, this is my Star Wars, and then another side of the street saying, no, I like the prequels, and then the other side saying, I like the original series, and, you know, the original uh, trilogy. So, it, it, it you know, the heads start hitting each other, and, and, and division happens within mm-hmm. the fandom. Uh, division nowadays, I think, is more based on generation. It's like generations will take ownership for what they believe their Star Wars is. Yeah. And, um, I, I mean, I try to just keep it wide open to everything. But um, but it's interesting how, how lines get drawn in the sand nowadays as far I, as that goes. I think that there is – I really feel that if you're going to compare 
a franchise to Star Wars. I think that Harry Potter is in in a lot of ways the the best comparison it, from this from this point of view that you know when there's an entire generation of of kids that grew up as that saga unfolded from 1977 to 1983 likewise there's an entire generation of kids that grew up with those novels and those films being released you spent you know uh in in the case of Harry Potter, I think it was over 10 years of growing up with those characters every couple of years, a new book coming out and then just, you know, devouring it over the course of a couple of days. And then the next book would come out and you're a little older and Harry's a little older. And you I think that there's such a loyalty and devotion to those characters because kids literally feel like they grew up with them, like they were friends of theirs going to Hogwarts and all of that. And I think that in a lot of ways, uh, I, I, I can't even really count myself in it because I came on towards the, the tail end of it in 1983. But, um, Jim, you have to feel that in a lot of ways you grew up with Luke Skywalker. Oh, absolutely I do. Are you kidding? It was a huge part of my childhood in, in, in so many ways, both symbolic and realistic. There were so many things that I connected to with Luke Growing up, you know, um, the older I got, the older he got. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Isn't that crazy? You guys didn't have the same hairstyle at one point. I <laughs> at one point, I, I had a little more of a mullet thing going on, but that's okay. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting just how you, uh, you, you connect with all that stuff. But um, also interesting um, what you mentioned with uh, the fact that, they're making it up as they go along, right? Yep, yep, yep. So here's my question mm-hmm. to every Star Wars fan that's been around since day one. Is making it up as you go along a bad thing? And the reason I ask this is because we've been so conditioned as fans of Star Wars for the longest time by George himself revealing that he had the films all mapped out. And whether he did or didn't, that didn't matter to us. What mattered to us is that we knew it was going someplace, right? Mm. We, we felt like the mythology was already in place. We just needed to be told the story. Right. In reality, right. Right. George had sketchy ideas for the prequels when he was making the original trilogy. But he didn't have it all mapped out. And he truly was making it up as he went along, based within the confines of the rules and boundaries he established in the original trilogy. He was still just making it up as he went along. We I'm, knew it had to go someplace, though, right? Yeah, right, right. I, I'm, I'm glad that you bring this up, because that is really the crux of this article. And there, there's a couple of quotes here. Um, it says, while there's plenty of historical evidence to support the idea that George Lucas also flew by the seat of his pants in planning the original Star Wars trilogy, he certainly didn't broadcast that fact. And despite prequels and special edition retcons, the first six films are considered to be his singular vision, for better or worse. And at least since 1980, he's had a rough idea of where the story was going. Mm-hmm. So I-, I think that that's true. I think that between... A New Hope and Empire, there was a lot of figuring this thing out. We know that Vader was completely reconceived because of popularity. Um, it's, 
I don't want to debate. I am not a Star Wars script scholar, okay? Um, and I admire the people who are. But I think that there is a lot more uh, continuity of ideas between Empire and Jedi than there were necessarily between A New Hope and, and Empire, I think he he had his act together, and you know when he was writing a new when he was making a new hope, he thought and hoped that he was going to have uh, a sequel, but he didn't know for sure. By the time he was making Empire, he knew damn well that Jedi was going to happen. Um, so I think there was probably more pressure on him to to wrap it up and and have it go somewhere. The place where it gets a little bit sticky is. The Leia sister thing. I think that he clearly knew at the end of uh, or towards when he was writing uh, Empire Strikes Back that Vader was going to be the father. But I don't think he knew necessarily that he was going to wrap Leia in uh, as the as the sister. Um, but he's no, that's a good point. That's yeah. a very good point. There's been a lot of evidence over the years to suggest what you're saying is totally true, that even by the time he had wrapped Empire Strikes Back. And Yoda has that line in there. No, there is another. Mm -hmm. We fully believe that George was considering someone else to be that other. Someone other than Leia was going to end up being the other. And it was during the years between Empire and Jedi, George started to realize that the whole process of making Star Wars was beginning to wear him down mentally and physically. And the concept of continuing on with a, fir- a, a new trilogy following Return of the Jedi was impossible. Oh. So he wanted to wrap it all up. So it could stay wrapped up forever if necessary. And so he made Leia the other just out of sheer uh, convenience, really. Because to wrap it up, there. right? To, to wrap it all up. Yeah. But, I mean, of course, that mythology took on its own life. Big, I mean, it, it just became so real, you know, with now the twins and everything. And uh, the expanded universe built upon that uh, to an insane level. But the story was meant to end with Jedi per George Lucas during the production of that film. He realized that he wanted to put an end to it. Yeah. He, and then the whole idea of him thinking that, well, once technology kept, catches up with my imagination, I'll do the prequels was just a thing he said to sort of buy himself time. And then I think he actually began to believe that when yeah. movies like Jurassic Park came out. Right. Right. Oh, we could do that now. Oh. Well, and I also, I, and, and I, I don't say this as a, in a way to disparage it at all. So don't, so don't take me the wrong way. But I think he also saw the prequels as an opportunity to make money to invest in even better technology. Mm-hmm. What better way to, you know, what, what more of a sure thing than new Star Wars, you know, going into the, into the mid to late 90s uh, to bankroll some serious um uh you know it's technology and there there was no more of a sure thing if you're going to to gamble and invest some money so you can make even more money to turn it back into the business that you love um you know star wars was it now here's something that i want to because you brought up the point about does it matter the fact that it's not, it is or it, is, it isn't planned out from the beginning, it doesn't matter. And I think that Ryan brings up an interesting point here. 
He says the new Star Wars trilogy doesn't seem to be the visions of one person, but instead carefully planned movements by a corporation. While this might result in movies that fans enjoy, it does damper a little bit of the magic. If we discover the identity of Rey's parents in The Last Jedi, but learn that it wasn't even planned or thought out at all in The Force Awakens, doesn't that make the cliffhanger feel sort of cheap? Doesn't it make the choices these characters make somewhat arbitrary? Well, you know, that's uh, a situation of... uh what you don't know won't kill you. <laughs> right. And right. so that's why I feel like they're really, you know, a guy like J.J. Abrams is really throwing a time-honored Star Wars tradition out the window by saying things like, you know, revealing that he didn't have any story beyond The Force Awakens. Um, by guys on the inside, like Ryan Johnson, saying... Yeah, you know, it's all this this process where we just go in and it's like a a, a college campus and we we think tank it and we bang it all out. And if, I mean, I like I like all that, but I also like being teased with the idea that the mythology is already established. But what do we have establishing that mythology? In the prequel era, of course, we had the original trilogy. During the original trilogy era, George was going on talking about how he has it all mapped out in notebooks. Mm-hmm. And occasionally he would tease us with a little tidbit about what went down in those prequels, a la his early interview with Rolling Stone magazine, where he mentioned Vader was scarred due to a duel with Obi-Wan Kenobi involving molten lava on a volcano planet. Right. Well, you know, you, you hear that as a kid, you're like, hot damn, sign me up. <laughs> and that's why the anticipation for the, sequ- the prequel trilogy was so off the charts and may never be replicated because it was the big rebirth. It was the big return, bigger than The Force Awakens, which was also, you know, a huge deal, no doubt about it. But I just uh, don't think we'll ever see hype to the extreme that we saw when episode one was preparing for launch. That was, that was insane. And it was because we were feeling like we were finally getting the story that's always existed. It's finally being revealed to us. This is like treasure. Treasure. <laughs> you know? Well, here's my question. The bigger question that I have is... Why? Why, when you have such great talents like J.J. Abrams and Lawrence Kasdan putting their heads together and creating this great story that that most of us enjoyed very much in The Force Awakens, why not commit to Ray's backstory? Why not commit? To Finn's backstory. Or... And create a, a saga Bible for those characters. Exactly. Exactly. That I mean, only, compare... only those behind the scene would be able to access, but that's where they would find sure. the foundation for any character growth that goes on in right. these films. Right. Create the Bible. Now, there was something very interesting. I, I, I believe it happened on Twitter, and I, I didn't... I didn't print out this story, and this is just off the top of my head. Jim, you might have seen this online, where um, someone tweeted Pablo Hidalgo at Lucasfilm um, saying, hey, will we ever know the, the story or the, you know, the, 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 the script or the idea, the concept of Episode 7 or the sequels per George? 
what George wanted. And Pablo said that there was going to be a definitive making of Force Awakens book that was going to be coming out. He didn't say when, but, you know, he said, stay tuned. And he said he was he was he did say uh, definitively that the idea of a girl, you know, female Jedi in training going through the paces a la Rey came directly from George Lucas, that that was in George's treatment for episode seven was there was going to be a female Luke. There's no huge surprise. I mean, Luke was originally conceived as as a female, the Star Not originally, no. I, there was a time during the uh, preparation of the second draft where George said to Ralph McQuarrie that he was considering a shift in the character and making the lead a girl, and Ralph ran with that and created some artwork. There we got the artwork. Okay, so that's where we got the artwork. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, so it, it's, but it's not a completely foreign or, or uh, you know, uh, you know, idea for George to be thinking in those dire- in that direction. So I, I find that interesting, and I and I hope that uh, I'm taking Pablo at his word that we are, uh, you know, eventually going to hear. Well, I, I don't think we'll ever know the real story, and this is all corporate stuff. But that we'll get more of a glimpse as to what George's um, in- intent was for those stories before the sale to Disney. So, uh, but for me. I don't want to say that it, it, it legitimized Ray. Ray's always been very legitimate to me. I've, I've, I've got a great, huge fondness for the character of Ray. But there was something a little bit special and kind of cool about hearing that, you know, that, that an idea of a Ray-like character came from George. There's always going to be that little stamp of approval thing that we kind of, we kind of look toward. But the notion that um, her, you know, let's just take the, 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 the the idea of Ray's lineage is that's the, probably the biggest, even I think bigger than who the who the heck Snoke is. I think the idea of who Ray is is probably the biggest um, mystery of the start the sequel trilogy so far. You take her parents, and you've what, what do you what do you got? You've got her uh, making the marks on the wall inside of uh, her 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 homestead there. Uh, counting down the days, how many days she's been there. You've got the flashback scene, uh, you know, quiet girl, you know, she's yelling and she sees the ship go and all this stuff. Do those moments have less resonance? Do they feel hollow knowing that they're not there in support of any specific idea? No. And I'll tell you why. Because the entire idea of the sequel trilogy, it's there without any kernel of any specific idea. It's just building off of Star Wars. They're creating something that, like I said, George Lucas considered Return of the Jedi to be the end of the saga at that time. He's famously said even during the prequel era or shortly after the wrap of that, he said that uh, there is no Skywalker story after Return of the Jedi. But that's not true now. We're you know we're hearing a whole new uh, a whole new story, and that's built out of nothing more than what existed before it. Nothing was foreshadowed. Um, well, we'll see. It, it's up to the guys making these new films to fit the puzzle pieces into the right spots, mm-hmm. and and so I mean, as long as the payoff is there. When we get the complete story, which we don't have right now, right? 
See, we're, we're dealing with this lack of confidence simply for the fact that we just have no idea where this story is going. Now, to hear the creatives behind it also have no idea where, that's, where the story is going is sometimes a little disheartening. You know? That's the point. Shouldn't they know more than we do? I mean, when you think about it, Jim, think about you and me sitting in the theater there in Chicago watching The Force Awakens for the very first time. The lights come up and you've got all of these ideas running through your head and you're trying to guess what J.J. and Kasdan has in store in terms of the story. Uh, And to think about that moment and to think that at that moment, no one knows, including the writers, the answers to those questions. There is an aspect of, there is a little letdown to that. You just feel like saying, is this going somewhere? And yeah. you hope it is. I mean, yeah. you, you hope it is. You have faith that it's going somewhere. Now, sure, there have been franchises I've been involved with in the past. Some that J.J. Abrams might have even been involved with. (laughs) Lost, for example, where I thought it was going somewhere. And where it went was, it it seemed like there was a lot of static and distortion along the way there. And uh, it didn't end up going into a place that really even added up to anything that I would find to be interesting. I'm sorry. I mean, I know there are a lot of people. Listen, let me just say with loss, I kind of lost interest well, in those last few seasons. So the the, the end of the, the series just didn't have an impact on me like it would with some of the more hardcore fans, which I know there are many of. My brother, Bill, perfect example. You know, he, he liked it and was into the mythology all the way through. I felt like they just lost direction. Mm. So... Um, you know, you fear that with Star Wars. I think it comes from a place like with J.J. Abrams. He had to be convinced to direct The Force Awakens, right? He had to be convinced. So it just showed that he he didn't want to take ownership of Star Wars. So for him to lay down some directive for the future of Star Wars puts him in this quarterback position almost. M- makes him you know sit in the chair of George Lucas, essentially. And that's not what J.J. Abrams wants. And thus, the reluctance on his part to provide a solid and concrete future for these characters beyond the film he was responsible all, for. All right. Uh, let, me throw a, let me throw a little conspiracy theory at you. Okay? Just going to throw this. What if J.J. didn't define it for leverage? What if he wasn't going to put all his cards on the table? What if J.J. did have an idea? But he wanted to make sure that the deal was right for him to come back and do the other ones. Because there are those that, come, that, that, that say it wasn't J.J.'s choice not to come back. Oh, interesting. There are those that say that. So was J.J. Uh, holding back? And did they finally say, well, you know, we don't need your idea. We'll have. Ryan Johnson's idea. You know, we'll have Colin Trevorrow's idea. You know, Ryan and Colin were were announced very close together, if I recall. So they needed they needed the to know who the baton was being passed to. I think once they realized, you know, probably somewhere in the production of Seven that that JJ was not was not coming back. Now JJ is, I believe he's a he's a producer in name only, I think, uh on episode eight. I believe he does have a producer credit. Okay. On episode eight. Um, 
but uh, you know, I, I just wonder. You know, was that something that he was? You know, hey, I'm not going to give this all away. You know, I'm not George Lucas. You want my idea? You're going to pay for it, or you're going to you're going to you're going to give me the gig, and you're going to well, give me carte blanche. You know, to to write what I want. Well, it is Hollywood, and we're talking about a, a ruthless, cutthroat business, very competitive, uh, every man for himself. But, I, you know, I like to think to myself that J.J. Abrams has so many different uh, pokers in the fire, and he just, you know, really was legitimate and honest in the way he approached Star Wars. And he treated it like one and done. I don't know for a fact that he was not asked to come back. Maybe he wanted to and the decision. But, I mean, there's no evidence indicating that that could be possibly the truth. Again, like I said, he came into this reluctantly. Now, over the course of the two years he worked on it. Yeah, but somebody, I mean, wasn't some of that, could some of that have just been PR? You know, I'm not worthy. You know, well, you know, we can only deal with the the. We can only play the cards that have been dealt to us. So, uh, you you only know what we know. Yeah, like you, I do enjoy a a lot of the um, industry intrigue that surrounds (laughs) Hollywood. I'm a big fan of the behind the scenes Star Wars stories. And I did find it interesting that Pablo tweeted that about The Force Awakens, the making of The Force Awakens book. I did catch that tweet, Jason. Mm-hmm. Um, we should pull it up just so we're, we're being uh, honest about what was actually said there before we report it. Um, but Pablo did indicate that there is, yes, another making of Star Wars book that's currently being written and will be released at some point in time. We know J.W. Rinsler man uh, who recently uh, lost his blog lately, and our, our thoughts and condolences go out to J.W. <laughs> on the loss of his blog. Yeah, um, gone too soon. Some we... great summertime reading there, pal. But, uh, yeah, you know, um, I, I don't, and I don't believe it was his decision necessarily to pull it down. I think nah, that I decision think so. was made for him. <laughs> um, but uh, I, I don't want to speak out of school because I don't know anything about that. Um, I think, but, some, uh, I think some ad-ats surrounded JW's house. <laughs> At least a couple of scout walkers. You're surrounded. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, but, but JW was, of course, he wrote a book and it got shelved. Mm-hmm. So maybe the book is being, is going to be re-released and it, it, there's, there's a few ways we can look at it. Either it's going to be uh, re-released the way Rinsler wrote it. It'll be released with... Uh, Rinsler's material and material from elsewhere, or it will be completely new material. So uh, I think one of three scenarios is what we'll be getting with the the making of the Force Awakens book, which yeah. finally will get released at some point, according to a, a, a tweet from Lucasfilm's Pablo Hidalgo. Which I'm I'm scrolling through. Yeah, All right. we're just getting warmed up. We might as you know we're talking the news. Let's just get let's get to the news. We already are. I have good news for you, my lord. That's good news. Come closer, I have good news. I just thought we'd make it official that we're uh, uh, you know, definitely covering Star Wars news right now. Got to make it official. In case you're just joining us. <laughs> I, you know, I, I, I so uh, miss you know, the idea that we're not you know, live. I, I love doing, doing that. You know. in, case, in case you're joining us, we're still here with Jimmy Mack. On uh, Rebel Force Radio, was, you know, you, you gotta have to Still do that at certain Star times. Wars. Of the- <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. The same old stuff. The, the, the pee breaks were nice. When you actually uh, could, yeah. you know, <laughs> commercial break or or back in your day the smoke breaks. Yeah, well, you know, this, who needs that stuff anymore, right? It was amazing how I, I, I when I when I worked in radio and I was not on the air, but I always was amazed at how the how, how the jocks could uh, time the smoking of their cigarettes perfectly to you know the the, the stop sets in the oh, yeah. uh, in the. Sh- in the shift, uh, like they get right down to the butt, throw it down, mm-hmm. walk into the studio, hit the post. Yeah, you know, yeah. it was amazing. They had it down. Oh yeah, and you always <laughs> knew which were the right songs to take off on. You, you know, you always knew. <laughs> Stairway to Heaven, that's a smoke break. I worked with some of the best at that. <laughs> but uh, anyway, so that's that's the story of uh, of Jack Thorne coming in and doing a. Uh, a rewrite uh, i don't know what the did they say rewrite a brush up um what's the story and you bring, here? You, you you bring a uh, you bring an interesting point you know were they too close to it in terms of the uh i mean they lost let's be honest and and Kathleen Kennedy i believe herself said it uh, they're starting over folks episode 9 they have to start over it was it it, it was uh, Princess Leia was enormously central to the plot, the story of Episode Nine. I mean, we heard that Episode Seven was Han's movie, Episode Eight was to be Luke's movie, and Episode Nine was to be Leia's movie. And there's no Leia, so is it a huge surprise that they have a new writer, a different writer? Is it a sign of chaos? I don't think so. I don't think this is in the same vein as a. Uh, you know, Phil Miller and Chris Lord being replaced by Ron Howard after filming 85% of the Han Solo movie. We're not, we're not even talking the same ball. This isn't even the same right. as Giacchino coming on, uh, coming in seven weeks before, you know, uh, Rogue One was supposed to come out and uh, taking over for Dupla. I mean, it's not in that same vein. You're right. But still, uh, you know, the behind the scenes stories coming out of these movies is as uh Ryan over it what's the what's this site uh, you forgive me but I want to give him credit uh inverse.com Ryan Britt really well written piece I I highly suggest it episode 9 writer only proves the trilogy wasn't planned uh, and he brings up some really good points um what else we got we wish we keep it episode 8 should we keep going uh, let's see here. I think um, it would let's, be cool to hear a little episode eight stuff. I, I think specifically from John Boyega, who's out. About, uh, yeah. He's out on the circuit uh, promoting something or another. I, I don't know what he's got going on lately. I think it's Detroit. Isn't that the, is that his, his current flick? Detroit. Detroit? Or do, you have, do you have to call it Detroit? I think you have to call it Detroit. Is it called Detroit? Well, I mean, it's not like D E E T R O I. You know, but I, but I think that's. I think that's the name of the movie that he's out I am down with that. I'm down with that. Detroit. Um, uh, and uh, so John Boyega is sat down with Peter Travers on Popcorn ABC. It's a clip you can find online. And uh, he's talking about Carrie Fisher. And for me, it seems as though this is, this is news. Let's see if you think that it's news. Okay. Carrie Fisher, we lost. Yeah, yeah. That was sad. Yeah, that was very sad. You didn't sad. have many scenes to do with her. Uh, we have many scenes in eight. In, the, in this yeah, one. Yeah, in this one coming up. We, we work together closely. How was she with you? Yeah, amazing. You know, it's the same old, same old. I mean, you get to know someone, 
the gloss and the glamour of who the person it, just, it starts to kind of go away and you just see the person and you're having mm -hmm. a great time you're enjoying each other's company and I was in Nigeria when I found out I was with family and um, yeah it was, it, was, it, was, it was strange a strange feeling I, f I felt like everybody in the cast and just obviously around the world just went silent for a bit kind of like a dim light but um, yeah I mean this, this movie does her a lot of it sends her off in in a very amazing amazing way and she's she you know she's still kept alive in this franchise and that's that's the beauty of it you know she she lives forever in that sense ah, all right so her send-off is amazing and she's still kept alive in this franchise now there's a lot of different ways we could interpret that but mm -hmm. jim is it me or is this the first time that we have heard that episode eight is going to be a send-off for her character. I mean, I, I, we had heard that... We, we, all right, here's what we know. They're not going to re digitally recreate her for Nine. She's not going to be in Nine. She was supposed to be a pivotal figure in Nine. They're not going to recast her. But we had heard that she had finished her, all of her filming for Episode 8. Um, but that this is, this is some sort of send-off. So... Are they making a I think I believe we also heard they they weren't adjusting eight. That mm -hmm. nine was the film that was going to be adjusted. So I, I don't know. Are we just maybe maybe I'm misinterpreting what he's saying about you know her her, her send off. Maybe right. he just means kind of as a figure of speech. Uh, yeah. This is her I think he song. means as as her last performance mm -hmm. will be really impressed by what she does in this film. And he does mention he has several scenes with her right now barring things that end up on the cutting room floor um several scenes means carrie fisher will be in this film a lot because let's face it finn's screen time in the force awakens was considerable so you'd have to think that he'd be somewhere in the ballpark of the same amount of exposure in the last jedi and so that means he'll have several scenes with carrie fisher which means carrie fisher will be in several scenes of the film yeah, long long story short, we're going to be seeing a lot of General Leia. So yeah. that's a good thing. That's a great thing. That's what we can take out of that. When he says it's a great send-off tour, I don't think he means that from, you know, literal face value send-off. You know, it'll be... Yeah. It'll it'll be it's, a, not, it's not part of the story. It'll be a film. fitting performance to cap off mm. her great career. So mm. that's okay. what I think he means by that. Yeah. I hope that's what he means by that, <laughs> because I don't anticipate episode eight presenting us with the end of General Leia. I think that will ah. be happen. I think that will be something that will happen off screen. Off really. screen. Yeah. And off in screen the, or in something the, in, the, in the crawl. Or it could be um, a series of events that open up episode nine. And uh, we see Leia's ship get blasted out of the sky. And who sees it? Characters who are really close to her and stuff. So the emotional impact will be there. And then maybe mix in some outtakes, previously shot footage from The, the Last Jedi, and incorporate that into the beginning of yeah, episode they, nine. They never said that they wouldn't, you know, perhaps use discarded footage or reused they they just said that she wouldn't be recast she wouldn't be uh created digitally and stand-ins can be used 
dead as they are used for just about any film. I mean, yeah. there's always stand-ins for uh, any any major character in a film. There are certain scenes where you're not seeing them. You're seeing their stunt double. So, uh, or maybe it's many... like it's like Ray's parents. They still don't have any idea of what they're going to do. Well, I think we're <laughs> at that crossroads right now, aren't we? That's <laughs> Jack Thorne, right? Yeah. Um, but anyway, so that was uh, John Boy. Now, one thing I didn't know, and this is uh, forgive us, this is um, this is not new, but I didn't know that John Boyega did impressions of his uh, castmates. Did you know this? Something rings a bell about this uh, piece of audio you're going to play, but this is older. I believe this is from promotion for The Force Awakens, and uh, we yeah. just stumbled across it before the show began, and uh, we want to give it a listen to. We we decided not to listen to it until the show started off, so this could be something we actually played on Rebel Force Radio in the past, but, uh, you know... Uh, they, they say so much about everyone having shorter attention spans, so what the heck? We thought we'd bring it back. As a service to you, fan with a short attention span. Now listen to uh, listen carefully. You'll hear Carrie an impression of Carrie Fisher and what she sounds like while enjoying a Coca-Cola. Something that Jimmy and I have been pretty close to, actually, in real life. A Coca-Cola and chicken, chicken fingers. <laughs> Here we go. Uh, John, uh, here's the thing. Uh, can we can we go for another take where you uh, can do it faster? Great, JJ Abrams. Oh my God, John! Daisy Ridley. Oh, I'm not your best friend, kid. You're yeah. annoying, and you're a piece of. <laughs> 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 we have to turn back. It's a trap. Bar. I'll tell you a really good story. It really. Wait, who's that? That's Gary Fisher. <laughs> a really good story. <laughs> Sorry, Gary, but you were drinking a Coke when you said that. <laughs> uh. So yeah, you kind of see the visual here, but John throws. John says, "I'll tell you a really good story." And then he throws back, you know, mimes drinking, guzzling a Coca Cola in like one gulp. <laughs> Yeah, the, and then the belch. The belch, which, yeah, yeah. yeah. Which, I mean, Carrie, she wouldn't have held back. You know, no. If she had a good one brewing, she'd share it with the room. <laughs> we know this. He, no doubt. <laughs> we have audio of Carrie Fisher here. Uh, this is from, um, this is, she was doing uh, media for uh, The Force Awakens, and uh, I believe she was talking to Entertainment Weekly. Here it is. <laughs> oh, geez, there it is. There it is. Wow. <laughs> well said, Carrie. Rebel Force Radio. Star Wars! Nothing but Star Wars! Your source for the Force. You know it, you love it. From Tops comes the digital card collecting app, Star Wars Card Trader. Yes, collect and trade officially licensed Star Wars digital cards. All of your favorite characters, vehicles, and locations from the Star Wars universe are here, including replicas of those amazing and iconic original 1977 top Star Wars trading cards to futuristic all-new cards with exciting digital twists. Download it today in the App Store or in Google Play. And of course, we're using the Star Wars 
Force Card Trader app here at Rebel Force Radio. You can always trade with us here 24-7, 365 days a year. Just search username Rebel Force Radio and do it all from the comfort of your mobile device. It's the Tops Star Wars Card Trader app. These are the cards you're looking for. Um, hey, while we're talking about Episode 8, now this this could be... Uh, th- I don't know how seriously to take this, but 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 check this out. See if this passes the Jimmy Mack uh, poodoo meter. But, th- you know, we've heard rumors that Hayden Christensen is going to reprise his role as Anakin Skywalker in this sequel trilogy. I believe the rumors began with uh, episode seven. Um, at one point it was talked about, but then they really picked up steam. Uh, with respect to episode eight, but uh, according to Inquisitor.com, Jansen Clark, he says it is looking more and more likely that Star Wars episode eight will feature a character that is very important to the whole saga. Hayden Christensen will reportedly reprise his role in the prequel saga from the prequel saga as Anakin Skywalker in the highly anticipated sequel. He will apparently be back as a force ghost. Now, here's he's crediting uh, Mike Zero. Now, Mike is a YouTuber who talks about Star Wars, and he's drawing a connection by saying that one of the things that you'll be able to see at Star Wars Galaxy's Edge, this is the big 14-acre park that's going to be at uh, Disney World and Disneyland, is the Force Tree, a life-size model of the Force Tree, and visitors will be able to enter this thing, and that the Force Tree, this is the one that's featured in the... Last Jedi teaser, where yeah. you see Luke uh, in the in the you know the, the ancient Jedi books. Yeah. So he says that, according to um, the Imagineers and what he's hearing, that tourists will hear the voices of Yoda and Anakin mm-hmm. inside the Force Tree, and that he believes this is reflected. This is reflecting what happens in Episode Eight. I think that's a fair enough assumption. There also yeah. were, Jim, I, you, I think you mentioned this. There were reports that Hayden was spotted uh, on The Last Jedi set over at Pinewood Studios. Yes, this this is a, a rumor dating back to last summer. Mm. Yeah, Hayden Christensen. Not only Hayden Christensen, but Frank Oz. Frank Oz as well. Which leads us to believe we'll be seeing the Force Ghosts of both characters, Anakin and Yoda, in The Last Jedi. Luke. Luke. You must go to the deck of the system. <laughs> and like, the- sp- speak up, man. <laughs> show, show a little emotion. Yeah, the deck um, of the system is coarse and rough and it's <laughs> everywhere. Everywhere, everywhere. Uh, and and uh, Jansen does he does um, confirm what I what I just said that um, should be noted that uh, he was supposed to appear as a Force ghost in Star Wars Episode Seven: The Force Awakens before the idea was ultimately scratched. So that was uh, one of those things. So do you think that this um, does this does this hold water with you? The connection he's making between what he's hearing about an attraction at the uh, uh, Galaxy's Edge uh, Park and knowing that the tree is also in The Last Jedi, that that is enough evidence to suggest that we're going to see Force Ghost Anakin? 
I think we are definitely going to see Force Ghost Anakin in The Last Jedi. Uh, there was a, a moment during the Star Wars Celebration live stream from back in April when Hayden Christensen was being interviewed. Mm. And uh, he said, it's great to be back. And so a lot of people jumped to the conclusion, oh, my God, that means he's back shooting Star Wars films. That's what that means. But then other people said, well, he's just back at the old uh, convention there. That's what he's all. He's happy to be back at Star Wars Celebration. Hmm. Um, Yeah, yeah, this is true. This is true. But um, the rumor had been going on prior to Celebration. He uh, there was a lot of talk that he had been seen out and about the Pinewood Studios last summer. You know, we, we'd heard a lot about Obi-Wan, right? I mean, everything from Ray is a descendant of Obi-Wan Kenobi, perhaps a granddaughter or great-granddaughter or something. Uh, we've, we've heard talk that uh, he's going to show up and Ewan McGregor is going to play him, you know, aged as a, you know, an Alec Guinness um, type. And... Um, some of this was backed up by Ray's force dream, her force vision, her force back, whatever you want to call it. Um, and, cons- and I have a rundown here of every line. And, and, and this, was, um, this was published. This is actually taken from an upcoming uh, book that's coming out from uh, Lucasfilm called... Uh, Star Wars Super Graphic, A Visual Guide to a Galaxy Far, Far Away. And it's, a, it's a, like a collection of infographics breaking down the Star Wars saga. And what they do here is they take every single line of dialogue uh, from Rey's Force Vision and attribute it to where it occurs in the saga. And so this is the first time I've actually seen somebody you know, break this down, you know, even down to time code of what we hear. We have young Ray saying no. We have Yoda from Empire Strikes Back saying it's energy. And then Luke Skywalker from Empire Strikes Back. No! Yes! Yoda surrounds us and binds us. Uh, Obi-Wan, old Obi-Wan Kenobi, you will be tempted. Old Obi-Wan Kenobi, but you cannot control it. Yoda surrounds us. Obi-Wan, the false will be. Chancellor Palpatine, any Jedi. Young Ray, no! Obi-Wan, you will do it. Young Ray, come back! Uncar Plutt, quiet girl! Young Ray, no! Old Obi-Wan, Ray? Ray? Young Obi-Wan, these are your first steps. Okay, I go through that because conspicuous by his absence is Anakin. Not one line from Anakin in any of this. Not a line from Vader. You got Palpatine in there. You got Yoda several times. You got old Ben, even young Ben, or young Obi-Wan. You got Luke in there, but no Anakin. And when I go back and I look at that, and, and this is broken down so nicely, it doesn't it seem odd? What's going on? I mean, is there something that we can we can assume is 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 young is 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 Anakin's spirit not? As at rest as these others, uh, is why is he not contributing to this incredible moment of the Force Awakening? 
Well, Qui-Gon's not there either. Mm-hmm. Good point. Good point. So it's not like this is a family reunion necessarily. <laughs> well, Qui-Gon's also not at the end of Return of the Jedi either. Okay. Um, that hurts. See, why, I'm why, trying why to, I'm trying to work with this a little bit. Yeah. You know, um, interesting. I just um, wonder if, if there is perhaps something going on with the you know the, the the spirit of the chosen one. That's a great thing to uh, speculate about. Yeah, yeah. And there's no answer. I mean, again, like J.J. Abrams and Lawrence Kasdan, I have no answers. I just, just throw out assume, the questions. Yeah, we just assume it's Luke. Yeah, he's got the tree and the books, <laughs> and he's going to be there, just conjuring up these these visits from these spirits from beyond. And you know, it might not be that simple. Maybe he needs that. That family bond that he has with his father, specifically, yeah. thus indicating to us that maybe Ray doesn't have that connection with Anakin. Thus, maybe Ray is not a Skywalker, like has has been speculated. Uh, perhaps uh, the other thing is too. Uh, there have been some that have uh, guessed that the the spirit of Anakin Skywalker is uh, too busy with Kylo. That Kylo is the one that's communing with the spirit of Anakin Skywalker, and perhaps not Luke. You're hogging up all the time with Grandpa. <laughs> Shut up. He likes me better than you. <laughs> but I uh, want to talk to him, too. <laughs> no. Uh, I wonder my if that... My dad! My guess is that Force Tree uh-huh. at uh, Star Wars Galaxy's Edge at Disneyland... You're going to walk in there. It's going to be a bookstore. You're going to buy all those books Luke has there in the tree. It's a no-brainer. Oh, my God. The Force Tree Bookstore. That's You're absolutely you right. So you get the book. <laughs> that's, a, that's a good that's, tie-in. That's a really good tie-in. Uh, hey, speaking of tie-in, what about this little tidbit? What do you, do you, what do you make of this? So Benicio Del Toro's character, all we know about him is that his name is DJ. Right? Mm-hmm. That's all we know. Some have said, oh, it means Dark Jedi. It's a code name for Dark Jedi. Some are saying that we've already met his character, that he's a character from Bloodline. That it's actually Ransom, Ransom Casterfo. Ransom Casterfo, yeah. yeah. He was, uh, a centrist he was, uh, senator. Yeah, he, he was there and uh, contributing to uh, some of the events that happened in Bloodline. I don't think so. And I'll no. tell you who I think he actually is. Okay. All right. All right. Well, there's that moment in The Force Awakens. Han has taken back ownership of the Millennium Falcon. Right. And he runs down the, the, the history of who had their hands on the uh, Falcon with Rey, you know. Mm-hmm. Who had it? Duquesne? I stole it from Uncle Plot. He stole it from the Irving boys who stole it from Duquesne. Who stole it from me? Duquesne. Duquesne. Right, yeah. Letter D. Mm. All right. Maybe mm-hmm. Duquesne's last name begins with the letter J. I don't know why they'd want to hide that from us at this point. It's not a big deal. You know, if I saw that Duquesne was in a cast and it was Benicio del Toro, I wouldn't be like, you know, that doesn't spoil anything for me. I'll be like, oh, that's that Duquesne they mentioned. Cool. Well,. I thought this was weird. So uh, this is actually coming uh, again from YouTuber uh, Zero with an H. Um, He lays this out. He says that 
These could be spoilers. Him. I don't well, know Mike Zero, but right. these, right, I mean, right, who right, knows right. what his... We'll throw it out there. Sorry. I don't know Mike Zero. I don't know who his sources are, but in the event that this is actually legitimate spoiler material, I want to warn our faithful RFR listeners. All right. So Zero is saying that some of the parallels between Casterfo and Benicio's character, that all we know about, he's codenamed DJ, also known as the Man in Black, right? Hello. Uh, <laughs> well, I hear the train are coming. <laughs> I'm Ransom Casterfo. <laughs> Let me tell you about a boy named Sue and a girl named Ray. All right, so he says um, that uh, one of the things that was discovered about uh, DJ in The Last Jedi is that he's in prison in Canto Bight and that Finn and Rose, uh, played by Kelly Marie Tran, will be tasked to get him. So there's this this Kesterfo character ends up uh, getting a death penalty at the end of... I haven't read the novel, Jim. I think you you, you read it, uh, Bloodline, where he uh, apparently gets framed... Um, by some uh, by some love interest, mm-hmm. and ends up getting the death penalty, and you, you never really know exactly what happens to him. But uh, it's believed that he's you know perhaps still in prison, or maybe he still is in prison at the events of the Last Jedi. And Leia sends uh, Finn and Rose to go fetch him. So one co- one connection between the two characters is they're both jailbirds. All right. Uh, another one is that he uh, owns a fancy ship. So he's got in, in Bloodline, he's got this fancy ship. And apparently the character of DJ also has uh, a, a, a fancy ship. Um, and that D- D- Ryan Johnson also helped with the development of the Bloodline novel. So perhaps he pulled material from the book to use it. Um, here's something else that's really interesting. Um, it says, however, nothing is confirmed at the moment. Del Toro's character will go nameless in the entire film, and Disney is not planning to reveal anything, which has fans thinking he might be someone that is already well-established in the Star Wars universe. So he's going to go nameless in the entire film. That seems very odd. Well, look back to Empire Strikes Back and a guy named Boba Fett and yep. went unnamed during that whole film. So not right. unheard of. Not unheard of. Good call. He was, yeah, you know, all my friends in the neighborhood just called him Bounty Hunter. And I went to the Iron On t-shirt shop because, yes, back in the 70s, Iron On <laughs> t-shirt shops existed. And I had one within walking distance to my house. And so right after I saw Empire Strikes Back, I got that Boba Fett Iron On that uh, Chris Mock still proudly wears the very same uh, iron-on. Um, but uh, uh, all my friends would say to me, oh, okay, I thought he was just Bounty Hunter. They thought that that was his name, just simply Bounty yeah, Hunter. Yeah, because Vader says, he's all yours, Bounty Hunter. Bounty Hunter. Yes. And yeah, yeah, that Bounty Hunter. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Um, so Not giving hand to this Bounty Hunter. Hand. Hand. But uh, so Ransom Kisterfo, I don't know. I mean, you know, that's some nice synergy with the novels. But uh, Kisterfo was a relatively forgettable character. I just remember him because he was using his knowledge that he is he's the one who discovered the, you know, within the political realm Mm -hmm. that Darth Vader was Leia's father. He kind of outs her, doesn't he? He outs her. Exactly. 
Exactly. But um, beyond that, he, he's a, a relatively um, forgettable character. Mm. Uh, and I, I don't know if, if they would go so far as to tie that in, you know. But uh, we'll see. I mean, there's, there's so much talk about the synergy between the, the, the books and the comics and the movies and everything. I mean, let, let's see it all really connect. I, I would, I would kind of like that. Yeah. All right, The Last Jedi isn't the only Star Wars movie in production right now. We also have the Han Solo standalone film and um, a story that uh, I think we mentioned very briefly last week. Uh, We're going to get more to it right now is uh, John Powell has been announced as the composer. He joins a very small fraternity of composers, namely one other composer, uh, Michael Giacchino, who have stepped up to take the podium, take the baton from John Williams. So one of two composers now other than John Williams to score a live action Star Wars movie. So Jim, I had a good friend of mine at the day job who is a real uh, bona fide uh, film score buff. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like when you're a buff on yeah, something. Yeah. Right. Uh, and I said to him, I said, well, what do you think about uh, John Powell as composer for the new, for the Han Solo? And he, he, he said, well, that, that, yeah, I could, I could hear that, I think. So I said, really? I said, well, do me a favor. And he has this massive collection. I said, would you be so kind, go into your collection and pull a couple of tracks for me of John Powell's work of previous films that you feel best... Uh, exemplify his talent and what, and, and give us a sense of what type of Star Wars score he might oh, be able to create. I'm so happy you did this. You're, you're really providing a great service to us right now because, I mean, let's face it, I, I've never heard of Powell. Um, mm. I, I might be familiar with some of the films that he conducted and composed yep. soundtrack-wise, but I really don't have a grasp on him. Like, when I think of John Williams, there's just so many different signature sounds that hit my mind. Sure. When I think of a, a composer like, um, throw a composer at me. Um, Hans Zimmer. Like when I think of a guy like Hans Zimmer, there's a certain signature sound, even mm-hmm. if it's sometimes just a single piano note, <laughs> you know? But I mean, still, I recognize that sound as being his. Same with James Horner. Right. But what is Powell's sound? That's what I, I want to know. And does he have a sound that would make me think about John Williams? That's all I really want here is just to think about John Williams. Giacchino did a brilliant job at that. Yeah, you know, this... Um story that I'm looking at right now, this is from comic book movie. Uh, he, he says that, um, you know, a soundtrack, he, he goes back and he talks about uh, Giacchino's soundtrack for Rogue One. He says it's a soundtrack that many agreed that while not decent, was not one, while, while still decent, was not one of his best. Um, I mean, the verdict. Okay, but it was fair enough, fair enough. But it was serviceable for the film. I mean, yeah. it did what it was supposed to do. Right. So if we look at if we look at Powell's um, credits here, you got movies like Face Off, right? That's the Nicolas Cage movie uh, with John Travolta. Sure, I remember it. I don't um, remember the music, but I remember the film. The Jason Bourne films, okay. Uh, but but he is more well known for some of his animated work, like uh, Shrek, uh, Chicken oh. Run, Happy Feet One and Two, okay. Ice Age, Kung Fu Panda, and How to Train Your Dragon which has a third installment coming out shortly. Okay. 
Um, he also did X-Men The Last Stand, and that's where we're going to start here. So I asked uh, my pal Joe to pull some tracks, and uh, he chose three different scores of John Powell's that he felt were best um, would, would best be a glimpse into uh, John's talent. Uh, the first is X-Men 3, The Last Stand, which he thought was relevant because here... Powell was having to build on themes that were already established in previous X-Men films by Michael Kamen and John Ottman. So here we go. This is um, a track off of the X-Men 3 Last Stand soundtrack. This is The Battle of the Cure. That's the battle for the cure. Very superhero. I mean, appropriately so, um, with uh, it being the X Men. Um, so a lot, a lot of drums. You had the shakers at the beginning. So this is, you know, this is a big action scene, uh, obviously. Um, but there you go. That's uh, the battle of the cure from X Men Three: The Last Stand. Uh, John Powell. Now, Does that make you think of any pre-existing Star Wars music? Uh, you know, I was thinking space battle. I was thinking a little bit like uh, opening of episode three, um, a little bit there. Okay, I hear that. I hear crawling that. with vulture droids. Oh, uh, master! <laughs> um, buzz so, droids, master! Bu- buzz droids. Yeah, buzz but, droids. You know, yeah. But I also thought of the Tuscan Raider attack on Luke and mm. Hope. I thought of the speeder chase with Zam Wessel in episode two. Uh, though they 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 certainly seem consistent with the type of action soundtrack you would like to hear applied to a Han Solo film. Yeah, here's one. uh, This is one more here from uh, X-Men 3, The Last Stand. Let me see if I can get this queued up in the right spot. Uh, Where are we at here? One. Let's go 116 here. Okay. This is a track called uh, Phoenix. I'm sorry. This is the, the title track, The Last Stand. A little softer tone here.
There you go, The Last Stand. So very sweeping, very epic, uh, somewhat romantic. So you might it had, a, see... it had a Disney flavor to it, in, in my opinion. Mm. Okay, I can hear that. Sounded more consistent with what you, you hear in you know classic Disney animation. That's just yeah. what it made me feel like. Mm-hmm. I didn't say mm-hmm. it necessarily sounds like anything in particular, but that's just the sort of feels I get from a track like that. So there's John Powell having to step in and sort of build upon the themes of a, a Michael Kamen and a John Ottman uh, from the previous X-Men films. Now, uh, let's hear some swashbuckling action. So he also composed the score for Pan. Uh, I don't know if you remember the movie Pan. It was a uh, take on you know the Peter Pan legend, Peter Pan story. And, uh, of course, you got pirates and all kinds of, uh, you know, adventure going on. This is a track called Pirates versus Natives versus Heroes versus Chickens. Very ominous. Pretty quintessential action sequence. Um, I, I wouldn't say anything you know, terribly unique there. Um, no, I, I didn't, I'm not a fan of that particular track. I got to say, it sounded to me a little flat, a little synthesized. Yeah, I actually uh, thought it sounded like something you'd hear in a Bond film. Maybe, yeah, because it did have that sort of exotic flavor to it. Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. would indicate escapades happening in like a Eastern yeah. country, you know. But... Um, but no, I, I don't find any sort of Star Wars flavor in that particular track. Now, here's one. This is also from the, the, the Pan soundtrack. And uh, this, I, you know, when I listened to this, I thought, okay, now th- this feels a little heisty. You know, I could, you know, maybe this is a little uh, Lando and, uh, and, and, and Han working together kind of a thing here. Something's about to go wrong here. Let's get out of here, old pirate! So that is uh, that is fetching the boys uh, from the again the pan soundtrack. 
You know what I mean about like, kind of feeling kind of heisty there at the beginning, like uh, you know, you're trying to break in somewhere, do something you're not supposed to be doing. Yes, yes. But again, doesn't make me think Star Wars at all. Mm-hmm. And maybe that is definitely a direction they they can be considering going in with this film. Make it so outside the box. I thought right. the Boba Fett film, if it would to be ever made, would provide that avenue of sheer exploration, expansion, a different approach to Star Wars. Give it a heavy metal soundtrack, you know, <laughs> something like that. That's I mean, I was thinking something vastly outside the box for yeah. that film. Um, after Don- Rogue One, I was very grateful that it stayed consistent with Star Wars films as we know them. It seems like Rogue One just fits right in, you know? Mm, yeah. So I, I, I have to wonder, I mean, we're hearing something from a composer who does do things vastly different. Um, but the question is, is he going to be bringing that past experience with him or is he going to check that at the door and create a, quote, Star Wars soundtrack? Yes. I've got one more to share with you. This is from uh, How to Train Your Dragon 2. Uh, this is the, the track is called Two New Alphas. Two new alphas from the uh, How to Train Your Dragon 2 soundtrack. So that's what we brought for you. Uh, Jim, it seems like uh, of all of them, you were most into the X-Men stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe it's just because it fits more within the the, the typical genre we're talking about here. Yeah. Um, you know, maybe it's just the, the one that you can really extrapolate most easily from his existing soundtracks and then place it within Star Wars, where it could find maybe more of a home there than some of the uh, other uh, pan and uh, the, the animated stuff. Yeah. Yeah. You know, some people are wondering why it didn't go to Hans Zimmer, because he is a frequent collaborator to Ron Howard. And uh, so, you know, a lot of times, you know, they want to stick together, though, though people wondered... You know, about Giacchino, um, you know, there were many that speculated that he would actually score episode seven before it was announced that it would be John Williams because of his longstanding relationship with J.J. Abrams. Um, but you and I, Jim, we speculated many moons ago that it was likely J.J. who suggested Michael Giacchino for the job. I, I think so. I mean, perhaps. Um, I do find it also interesting that on the Force Awakens soundtrack, John Williams did compose the score, but he was assisted by a guy named William Ross in the conducting department. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Also, another really hot conductor in L.A. named Gustavo Dudamel also right. appeared as a special guest conductor. So when th- when that release came out, I thought to myself, well, maybe these guys are being primed for a future composing Star Wars films. Yeah. But it doesn't appear that there's really any sort of pathway you take to get the Star <laughs> Wars. It's it's uh, they're, they're considering all talents. Right. I, I can't speak for the other guy, uh, Ross. I, Ross. That sounds familiar. I, I, I feel like that is, is he not a, regular uh collaborator with john williams isn't he his he also his orchestrator who am i thinking of that's his orchestrator i'm trying to ask you to put you on the spot but um i thought that that was that was him now in the case of dudamel dudamel is uh to my knowledge not a composer dudamel is uh primarily an orchestra conductor so i just wonder if the maestro's you know advanced age perhaps uh prohibits him from you know, being in the recording studio at all times, conducting the orchestra, he writes the material. Um, and I know he does have an orchestrator, longtime contributor, and I can't remember his name. It's escaping me at the moment. But, uh, you know, well, it's one of those things that people, you know, a lot of times will say, oh, you know, John Williams didn't really write all that, you know. He, and they drop this guy's name saying that he wrote most of it. But Hey, we all have influences. <laughs> That's right. Hey, I wanted to ask you, did you happen to see this um uh clip i think it was on twitter of um the new chewy right so amelia clark who's in the film it was i'm sorry it was instagram it was not instagram it was not twitter it was instagram where she gave us a peek because she she reached uh what was it two million or was it 10 million i she was commemorating some big you know record number of followers that she was getting online um, and so sort of the reward was that uh, she showed this great peek at uh, Han Solo Chewie. Yeah. Uh, and I know, Jim, you've mentioned many times, you're like, boy, I can, I can always spot when it's really Peter or when it's, uh, you know, uh, is it, is it uh, Johan? Jonas Suetamo. Jonas Suetamo. Yeah. Or uh, as we call him uh, on Star Wars Influences with Paul Bateman, Stunt Chewie. <laughs> but that's not Stunt fair. Chewy. That's not f- fair to Jonas because he has truly taken over the role. He yeah. has. He is the new. He is Chewbacca, the next generation. And uh, Jonas, um, uh, I, I think I, I I hear what you're you're saying is is that uh, Jonas was part of the Instagram video from yeah. Amelia Clark. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just wonder if you had a chance to look at that. And I, want, I was curious of your take. Is it is this past? Past muster because you've been you've been somewhat critical about uh, you know uh, Chewie from Episode Three uh, compared to yes. you know you got you get Chewie in Return of the Jedi with sort of the the feathered do you got Chewie in Empire you got you know real because I think you were so happy about the look of Chewie in Force Awakens it really felt like Chewie from uh, A New Hope. Yeah, in the one clip we saw during the sizzle reel from San Diego Comic-Con. Uh, yeah, right. They, there was a shot of Chewie that I thought looked just great. Yeah. And I did see the Instagram video mm-hmm. from uh, Amelia. And, you know, whatever. 
about that one because that's just shot off stage. The lighting's not right. I mean, there's so many factors that come into play with Chewbacca. You can't just he's mugging know. the camera a little bit too. You know? Yeah, I mean, it's 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 out of character, Chewbacca. There's so many different things that are going on there that I am not going to use that as some sort of barometer for how <laughs> Chewbacca is going to look in the Han Solo film. I brought right. this up with Paul on the most recent edition of Influences. Where, yes, that moment when we saw Han and Chewie in the Force Awakens trailer, and he said those, those words, Chewie, we're home. It was just a great moment. But even at that, I looked at Chewbacca and I said, what is up with Chewie? He just looks weird. <laughs> his eyes are all wrong. You can't see the whites of his eyes at all. He just, it, it looks off to me. There's just a little something that's off. In all fairness, you can't throw Jonas under the bus because I felt like, Episode three, Chewie looked off to me. I don't. They did something weird to that Chewbacca, and that was always, Peter, right? That was Peter. And that was three. Peter yep. Mayhew mm-hmm. under George Lucas's direction. And uh, so, I mean, it's 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 easy to be critical of Chewbacca. I don't want to be critical of how Chewbacca looks. I want to completely throw that out the window and just get into the film. And but I mean, I see Chewie sometimes, and it just is is not the Chewie that I know. And and so that's either something I have to get used to, and of course I'm going to have to get used to it. But uh, that's just the realities of having different actors play these iconic roles now does Jonas have the blue eyes or do you uh, think he wears contacts question. uh he does have blue eyes yeah he, okay he has blue eyes you gotta have the you know the chewy blue eyes i mean it, i mean peter's eyes are so distinctive you know and that's always been the, sort of the hallmark of of that character in addition to of course all of his movements and the quirks and everything the way his body you know god we, we know that uh, they flew peter in to the to to meet with the animators of the clone wars so they could get everything just right because there's such a distinctive way that he portrays the characters but uh they portrays the character but there's so much in the eyes there's a lot in the eyes and yeah. and we're seeing that i mean obviously peter just has big expressive eyes mhm yeah. Which made him great for the role. And unfortunately, Jonas might be lacking in that department a little bit. Yeah. But uh, there are characteristics of Chewie that Jonas nails. Most of them, let's just say. Yeah. It's just I think it comes down to the lighting a lot of times. It comes to the angles that the, the mask is being shot at and, uh, and a lot of different other variables. But uh, I can't be the only one seeing this. Yeah. Oh, I mean, no, just, I think you're right. I... I I thought, you know, as far as looking just at the suit, I thought what we saw on Instagram there, uh, Amelia Clark's post looked great. I yeah. thought it looked great. Yeah. You know, it looks good. Looks good. Chewy, the next generation. <laughs> dun, 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 dun. Uh, what else do we tell you? Oh, well, Ron Howard has uh, come out and said that, uh, you know, kind of reassuring fans, he said that. Uh, the movie is coming along great. This was according to Heat Vision. Uh, he said it's a fantastic script, a great cast, and I'm always having a fantastic creative experience with it. Um, he also said that uh, it's a great young cast, incredibly strong, smart, funny people who love their characters and love being part of this. I think we'll be able to do something that is a lot of fun. So... There you go. Lot yeah. of fun. A lot of fun. Yeah, well, and people mean, are talking about the humor and all that in this. 
Well, yeah, somebody very important is talking about the humor in this is Woody Harrelson, guy who's actually in the movie. This is Woody Harrelson on Entertainment Tonight talking about that very thing. How has the transition been with Ron Howard taking over? Fortunately, the force is still very much with us, so uh, <laughs> it's great that Ron came along when he did. What makes Alden the perfect young Han Solo? He's a great actor and a great guy, great sense of humor. I think that a lot of humor comes through what he's doing, and uh, I think it could be one of the funnier Star Wars movies. No big surprise there, right? I mean, from the beginning, we've heard that this tonally was, if there was a comedy Star Wars film, this was it. True, true. It's funny, he's talking specifically about Alden and Alden's comedic timing and everything. When we also did hear a report last month that it was Alden who was the one who blew the whistle on Lord and Miller, informing people at Lucasfilm that maybe they were taking the film in too much of a wacky direction. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then there was all the talk about, you know, Alden needing uh, some sort of acting coach on the set and all kinds of stuff. You know, it's um, who, who knows what to make of all this. Uh, I, I think Woody, you can just sort of tell by <laughs> Woody's tone that um, he's keeping it real. And he says, yeah, it's good that Ron Howard came along when he did. So perhaps, you know, that's an admission there that it really was not a good scene, what was well, happening on set. Well, I think they're toward the end. It was, you know, the, the reports about uh, the crew erupting in a round of applause when it was announced that Ron Howard was coming to town. Yeah. I think that speaks volumes. If, if that's actually what went down, then, uh, yeah, I think a lot of people were looking for a change. It just sounded like the production had stalled. Right. Under their direction. Sure. End of the day, I mean, they're there to create a film. So, and everyone wants to do that and go home. Yeah. Um, there was a, I don't have it in front of me, but there was a, a story that appeared earlier this week about the timing of the sacking of Lord Miller. And uh, it has something to do with the Directors Guild rules. And, and one of them cites, uh, you know, if, if, a, uh, if a new director comes in after the previous director has shot 90% or greater of the film, that limits certain things that the new director can do. It lets the old director uh, have a say over some of the post-production, etc., blah, blah, blah. And that the timing was such that they caught Lord Miller around the 85% mark. So... Lord Miller had shot 85% of the film. Ron Howard's coming in uh, to do another 15%, but it does still give Ron Howard the control that he needs in the editing bay. And that's really where I think this film is going to be shaped. <laughs> you know it. <laughs> you know it because they're going to have an abundance of content and material to work with. Yeah. So yeah. They'll, they'll have their options, you would assume. Yeah. Hey, um, so, you know, when we found out that Ron Howard was going to take the helm of uh, the new Han Solo movie, there were a lot of questions people were asking. But one of them was, will his brother Clint Howard have a cameo? <laughs> yes, <laughs> Clint. Clint. Now, Jason, I don't know how 
familiar you are with Clint Howard. I, mean, I, I should say the back great to, you know, Clint the old, Howard. Yeah, the old, the old Star Trek. You know, he played Baylock. All right, going back way back. Yeah, Star because Trek. much like Ron, his brother Clint was also a child actor in the 60s. And um, he was probably most well-known for Gentle Ben which was mm. a show about this kid and a bear. and uh, <laughs> But he did appear in that episode of Star Trek yeah. and uh, with, with a voiceover dubbed in. Um, I got to know the great Clint Howard for all of his work in, in, in various B-movie, B-horror films, you know? I mean, I, I loved him. I, he would... He took on some crazy wild roles. He, He's he, got a face that you'll, you never forget. <laughs> once, you know, once you see him... I was like a Peter Lorre kind of, you know, uh, classic. He looks like he belongs in, you know, no offense, but, you know, in, in, in every, any horror movie. Right. And he just seems so gung-ho about the roles, too. Like, you know, he's on board all the way, Clint Howard, you know. <laughs> and that's what makes him so great for some of these crazy roles he's played in films like Carnosaur. And, uh, and uh, you know, there's, just, there's been so many. And, and also he's known for appearing in his brother's flicks, Ron Howard's films. He had a, a really nice role in Apollo 13, if you remember, yeah, yeah, he played yeah, yeah. A, you know uh, one of those NASA guys, you know, struggling right. to help them out uh, as they were tumbling through space, and uh, and so the, the tradition of him being in his brother's films and up for any kind of crazy role is awesome. So apparently, this week it was today, as a matter of fact, as we record this show, Jason, there was a tweet, a, a reply to a tweet from Ron Howard. Yeah, Andy Love, he tweeted out to Ron Howard. He said, uh, please tell me you have a role for Clint. <laughs> and Ron Howard's reply was, you won't be disappointed. Yes! <laughs> so Clint yes! Howard in Star Wars. It was meant to be. It was <laughs> meant to be. A lot of people are saying he'd make a great Dr. Evazan. If, uh, he should. But we've already seen him. We saw him in, yeah. in Rogue One. So right. I, I predict Clint will be uh, his own unique character. And I also predict if Ron Howard continues to have a career in the Star Wars universe and continues to shoot films, look out Warwick Davis. Clint Howard's in town. <laughs> but uh, just to get everyone up to speed with some of the greatness of Clint Howard's career, uh, the first clip I have of him is from an old episode of Seinfeld. This is probably the one most people are familiar with. George and Jerry are out in uh, L.A. to uh, bail out Kramer, who has been accused of uh, serial murder. <laughs> And uh, so they uh, end up uh, coming in contact with local law enforcement and they enter into a police car where Clint Howard is there already in cuffs from a, a previous uh, sting. So uh, here's uh, George and Jerry in the car with Clint Howard from this episode of Seinfeld. What do you tip a chambermaid? <laughs> I don't know. Five bucks a night. No. Dollar. <laughs> Two tucks. You guys aren't cuffed. What are you, narcs? Narcs? Imagine. Us narcs. No, no, no. No, actually, uh, we're uh, friends of a serial killer. <laughs> That's very nice. Oh, thank you. Suspected serial killer. We do it. Yeah, well, we don't think. We're pretty sure. A dollar a night? 
Yeah, that's a good tip. Oh, that stinks. I read it in Ann Landers. Oh, Ann Landers sucks. <laughs> so Clint Howard, not a big fan of the advice columnist Ann Landers. Oh, Ann Landers sucks. But that's okay. That's okay. So he's, you know, you see, he plays these characters. They're always kind of like edgy and crazy and stuff. Yeah. Uh, n- nothing was more edgy and crazy, also from the 90s, than his uh, role as uh, the Ice Cream Man in the classic uh, B-horror film of the same title, Ice Cream Man, where basically he, uh, instead of uh, serving up cones of uh, sugary cool delight to children he would serve up uh, cones filled with like eyeballs and fingers and oh, stuff like geez. that so here's a here's a quick clip from the uh, family film classic ice cream man <laughs> you little turds are gonna have to learn you can't run from the ice cream man i know where you live you tell anybody i'm gonna get your mom and dad there you go <laughs> <laughs> he called really? them all turds? Turds, little turds. Yeah, I wonder if he's actually going to use that sort of vernacular in the Star Wars universe. Could you imagine? Hey, you little turds! <laughs> Those droids don't belong in here. Get them out of here. I think they're poodoo pellets. <laughs> oh, those little turds. Disgusting smelling creatures. <laughs> so there's uh, Clint Howard as Ice Cream Man. And who could ever forget? Also from the 90s, uh, Clint's role in uh, the film Ticks, where a uh, small rural community gets uh, invaded by killer insects. And um, this is when Clint uh, utters his most famous line, I think, in his entire film career, the, uh, I'm infested! There it is, Clint Howard and Ticks. So, as you can see, I mean, there's nothing really, you know, people were worried about this uh, Han Solo film. I I think the production is in fine hands right now with the Howard brothers (laughs) taking over Star Wars. But so excited to see the great Clint Howard in uh, the young Han Solo film. Or as we Let's get official about it. We got to quit calling it the young Han Solo film. We have to call it the untitled Han Solo film. I think that's, that's what, what it is. Uh, yeah, I think that's the hashtag. That are they hashtagging Ron even that? Using, uh, yeah, Ron Howard. Uh, you got to follow this guy on uh, on Instagram and Twitter. He's he's tweeted several uh, shots, and w- one that we missed, Jim. I don't know if you saw this. Uh, there's a shot. Uh, this was on his Instagram. Uh, Ron Howard looking into a uh, a monitor, which clearly has um, Donald Glover as Lando Calrissian. In the viewfinder of uh, of one of the cameras. Did you see this? Hello, what have we here? Yeah, so that's our first glimpse of uh, of Lando on screen. He's uh, very well aware that uh, he cannot release anything that would even hint at a spoiler in this. Yeah. He told that to uh, uh, um, Hollywood Reporter mm. that he is well aware. But uh, it's fun to see if he's going to slip up anywhere. I mean, maybe there's going to be something in the background, you know. It's You ever get those uh, those links where it's like 
uh, selfies where something went terribly wrong in the background. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Maybe right. one of his pictures will have something very revealing in it. But I'm it sure. seems like every day or every other day he's got a he's got a new shot, you know, from the from the set. So he's definitely he knows how much passion there is amongst Star Wars fans. Uh, in fact, this latest one, I don't know if you saw this, this was today. Uh, he's uh, there with an astromech droid, uh, sort of a gold and silver uh, and white astromech droid. And he says, these droids can be so damn intractable, but we'll go until we get it right. <laughs> Hashtag untitled Han Solo movie. So, so we'll be seeing the yellow R2. I think this particular R2 unit last saw action in The Phantom Menace aboard Amidala's ship. Oh, is this I the same one? Same well, it colors? sure looks like. I mean, didn't they have a, a silver, white, and yellow R2 unit? Yeah, yeah Jim, they all look alike to me, I'll be honest with you. I don't want to sound like a bad person, but uh, you can't <laughs> tell one from another. Well, isn't that the reasoning for how Obi-Wan Kenobi didn't recognize R2-D2 when he was right there in the desert? I don't ever seem to recall owning a droid. Yeah. Well, George, like, yeah, they're like toasters. You know, no yeah. one from well, the other. He, he, he never did own R2. He didn't own R2. Seem to recall owning a droid. Well, what about that droid that's on board his ship there at the beginning of... Uh, R4! R4. Cab, old folks home, send the message. Yeah, episode two, man. You had yeah. a droid then. Yeah, which, yeah. You know, yeah. Maybe, maybe it's just like the Jedi temple owned that droid. He's just from like the droid... Yeah, well, there was the you know the episode of the Clone Wars where you know Anakin went crazy trying to rescue R two, and no nobody could figure it out. Like, why are you so upset about? It? Just get a new one. Just get a new one. It's like if you use those uh, those lose those uh, earbuds that you listen to the show on. You right. lose it, just go get another one. You go get another one, but you don't see people all wrapped up in their earbuds. No. Uh, maybe some people are. It's I know only you our show. Have your own your, your your favorite set of headphones. Oh, I do. Yeah. It's only our show, though. If, if like people are listening and they lose their earbuds, then they don't even replace them. <laughs> Get full access to RFR only on Patreon. Become a member of the RFR Patreon community to get more Rebel Force Radio. Bonus shows and content are available right now only at patreon.com slash rebelforceradio. Exclusive programming like RFR Rush Hour. Join Jimmy and Jason on the ride home. RFR Rewind. Look back at some of the show's greatest moments. RFR Q&A. Featuring you as the show host. Moderating the conversation for at least a full half hour. Plus, get full stereo high-fidelity episodes of the latest RFR. Early access to RFR events. Ringtones. Exclusive updates. Giveaways. And more. Become a member of the RFR Patreon community to get it all. And your contributions will help keep RFR alive for years to come. It all happens at patreon.com slash rebelforceradio. Don't wait. Visit Patreon today to get all access to RFR. Patreon.com slash rebelforceradio. And finally, uh, going back to D23, director Ryan Johnson there on hand and talking about, of course, The Last Jedi. And uh, got several highlights here. Jim, what do you got for us? Yeah, I, I combed through as much of the interview footage that I could from D23, looking for any sort of hints or uh, clues. But um, for starters, you know what? I'd like to jump to uh, cut number two. Mm-hmm. Let's go to cut number two. And the question was asked of Ryan Johnson, how does The Last Jedi change the direction of the saga? Here's what Ryan Johnson had to say. 
I tried to, I don't know if this will be an answer, but I tried to kind of not think in those terms because I feel like on both sides, like I didn't, I was never thinking like, oh, this will pay homage to this. Oh, this is like that. But this, And I was also never thinking, oh, we're going to throw this away and do this and we're going to do this different because I think that just leads to bad story choices. For me, it was just like, where should these characters go next and what's the most interesting way of telling that? That having been said, there's... There's, you know, this stuff is mythology for those of us who grew up with it, and there is just some bedrock stuff that's built into our brains that is Star Wars. And there is, like Lucas has said, there, these movies do rhyme with each other in thematic ways, and they have things that reflect things in the previous movies. And so there are ways that through that storytelling process, those are, are going to happen. But I hope it's still surprising. I hope there's still enough fresh stuff, and I hope we strike a balance. I do like hearing him quote, George there. And yeah, he, I think that's the thing that struck me the most about these comments. Mm, yeah, he definitely is showing a... Uh, look, I mean, anybody who's going to step into the the reins of uh, you know a Star Wars film, particularly somebody of his generation, um, is, you know, hopefully is going to be somewhat steeped in um, Lucasian... I think that's a word. Uh, <laughs> thinking. Um, but to hear him say it, you know, I, I just there is a um, there's something that is uh, very satisfying about uh, whether it's J.J. Abrams or Ryan Johnson or Gareth Edwards uh, paying some sort of respect to George Lucas in their statements. And I appreciate that very much. Yeah, it's it's most important. And, and I hope that. Future filmmakers in the Star Wars universe continue to look back on George. And, uh, you know, despite the fact that he can be sometimes cantankerous these days. Well, especially if you're asking for his autograph. Right. But I think just in regards with his relationship to the Star Wars franchise, there are times when he just really finds comfort in the fact that he is retired from it all. And wants to keep it that way. Yeah. So, yeah. I, you know, despite that, and also I think these filmmakers, again, as I said before, with J.J. Abrams not charting out an exact course for this sequel trilogy upon the creation of his foundation that he laid out for it, um, I think that just indicates that these filmmakers are intimidated to be considered the guy. You know, when it comes to Star Wars, mm-hmm. I think that George Lucas's plaid shirt is that big. Wait, <laughs> uh, wait, that didn't sound. Right. But no, what you know what I mean? His shoes sure. are that big; they're hard to fill. And and I think those beat up old tennis shoes. There's an intimidation factor here. Yeah, with these filmmakers, these guys have good solid careers. You know, may, maybe they just don't want to get bogged down by it, or maybe they fear the not the responsibility, but just the weight of the responsibility that comes with something like that. It would have to, it would have to get in your head. I mean, I think one of the things that made JJ so ideal was the fact that he, he'd been there, done that. I mean, he had, he had weathered the storm of the storms of uh, intense uh, scrutiny from uh, fans of a specific franchise and came through it. Um, you know, quite successfully, uh, uh, multiple times. And 
The difference, though, with Star Wars was we knew. I mean, he would he was so outspoken during the production of those first two Star Trek movies that how much he loved Star Wars and people, you know, a lot of the diehard Star Trek fans accused J.J. of Star Wars-ifying Star Trek. So when he finally, then when he finally got the Star Wars gig, um, I, you know, it could, it was, I think anybody's guess was, was his love of Star Wars going to get in his head? Was it going to prohibit him from, displaying you know some of the uh the genius that he had in previous uh, with previous projects i would say that for the most part he came out uh looking great he gave yeah. he provided a great film um i kind of wish that he had maybe finished the thinking but perhaps that really wasn't his mandate no wouldn't it have been funny if he turned the tables and tried to star trek up star wars <laughs> We it's need like a transporter you know, room. It Hux is 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 pleading with snow. Supreme ruler, the weapon is ready. We're ready to fire the weapon. Let's blow these guys out of space. Let's fire off the weapon. And Snoke is like, we'd be violating the prime directive if we did something like that. <laughs> prime directive. <laughs> what are you talking about, man? There's no prime directive in Star Wars. <laughs> Blow up stuff, man. Star Wars about blowing stuff up. Uh, so what else we got from Ryan Johnson? More Ryan Johnson from D23. Yeah. He uh, spoke a little bit about what we were talking about earlier in the show. Star Wars carrying on uh, with with Carrie Fisher providing her uh, great send-off performance uh, from what we're to expect to see, according to John Boyega. Um, it'll be a great send-off for Carrie Fisher in The Last Jedi. So Ryan uh, weighs in with a few thoughts about Carrie Fisher. I mean, she was uh, a force of life, and she was, I mean, one of the funniest people I've ever met. And she was, um, she gives a incredibly beautiful performance in this movie that I think is going to mean a lot to um, to her fans, to fans of Leia's, to fans of hers. Um and you know, I, I, it's it's it, it's a loss that you, that you can't really put into perspective. It's so great, but I'm, I'm I look at her performance on screen and I think, well, you know, this is going to be there at least. All right. So maybe backing up what Boyega said from that certain point of view, that it's going to be a great send off for her, specifically due to her great acting performance in the film not maybe not necessarily they're going to finalize the fate of the character in the last jedi right right which again i think isn't going to happen until the beginning of episode nine just a gut feeling but that's what i believe so uh, ryan continued to talk about what the title the last jedi means it's tough to talk about without talking about it in the context of the movie because it kind of has, um, yeah, it has uh, not even necessarily multiple meanings, but its meaning evolves over the course of the film. So, yeah, it's, it's tough to talk about without getting into the story. But for me, I guess what ultimately what it comes down to is that first question of what is the deal with Luke Skywalker? And um, Luke and Ray are kind of the the beating heart of the film, I guess, and their relationship. And so The Last Jedi 
in all the things that it means is tied up in their story. And so it, it, that's, it was the heart of it. And it's something where from the very start, even when I was just coming up with the story at the beginning, that title seems crystal clear to me. So it's always made sense. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Singular, spe- plural, we don't know. He specifically says the film is about Luke and Ray yeah. and their relationship. So, you know, with the question about is Rhea Skywalker, is she a solo, is she nobody? Uh, you know, Ryan points out relationship. Mm-hmm. Does he mean the master and apprentice? Does he mean father and daughter? Uncle and daughter? Fifth cousin twice removed? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we don't know. But don't definitely know. that it's their film. It's going to be central to the uh, the story, and that's that's a good thing. We didn't, you know, obviously get enough Luke in episode seven, so we're going to get our get our fill. And we're definitely going to get dialogue. They are not just standing there on the rock of Octu, staring at each other, Luke and Ray, with Ray holding out the saber, going, "Will you take it already? My arm's starting to hurt." <laughs> and then Luke goes, "Where's my hand?" <laughs> they are going to have some sort of conversation. We know that has to happen at the beginning of The Last Jedi. So uh, somebody just went for it and they said, what's the first thing Ray says to Luke? That's what everyone I hope is, I hope is wondering. Yeah, it's... Then that was for me, like, the, the, when I sat down to figure out what this was going to be, that was absolutely the starting point, is not just, like, what is that scene or what is that moment, but the bigger question we have some sense of what Ray wants from Luke. To me, the big enigma was what's going on with, with Luke Skywalker. Um, why is he on that island? He knows his friends are in trouble. He knows the galaxy needs him. Why would this hero that I grew up with have put himself in exile? Um, to me, it was like if we can crack that nut, then we have something to start working with. And then that will inform uh, what their whole relationship is. You know what's interesting about that? I just had a little flashback to... uh, We were talking about J.J. and his reluctance to take on the Star Wars project. And I said, well, you know, is is some of that, uh, you know, just kind of feigned humility for the press and blah, blah, blah. And hearing that quote from Ryan about that was the first thing he had to deal with is, you know, what's going on with Luke Skywalker. And if you remember, Jim, J.J. tells a story about what it was that finally brought him into the fold of doing a Star Wars movie. It was a question that was posed to him by Kathleen Kennedy. Do you remember what that question was? It was, who is Luke Skywalker? Right. And that got and him that, thinking. And that, that got, got the him wheel, thinking. Got the wheels turning. But guess and what? He didn't answer that question. He really didn't. He did he? Did not answer that question. So it got him all jazzed, got him excited, got him to do the movie, but he didn't answer it for us. He left it up to Ryan Johnson to answer. Sounds to me like that was his task with this movie. But JJ did, in a way, tell a story about Luke Skywalker. He did. He made it obvious that 
there are people in the galaxy who have heard of Luke Skywalker, but don't necessarily believe that he ever even existed. There are those who are looking for Luke Skywalker desperately because they believe he will help end a conflict that's been brewing. And there are others who are searching for Luke Skywalker who believe that he will provide a threat so they want to wipe him out. So J.J. did, in a way, sort of tell a story about Luke Skywalker. Where is he? Why is he the mystery of who, you know, of, of where he is, who he is, and what he's capable of doing? Those are all of the questions that were put out there about Luke, which through those questions that were asked in the film, you get answers about what Luke had been doing in the time since Return of the Jedi ended. Also, Han uses some exposition to explain where Luke went, you know, or in what he's been up to. So J.J. does tell the story of Luke Skywalker to a certain extreme, just not necessarily anything that we see, but he does tell the story in his own way through the other characters. you're, You're right. You're right. I hadn't thought of it that way. I haven't thought of it that way. But it, because it, it, we, have, we have preconceived notions about Luke Skywalker going into The Last Jedi. We didn't just pull that out of midair. That had to be placed into our consciousness in some way. And right. it was through J.J. Abrams' storytelling. Yeah. Well. And we're going to find out much more come December 15th, 2017. Star Wars Episode Eight: The Last Jedi hits theaters. But until then can count us here at rebel force radio to be bringing you all the news as we count down the days to the last jedi We got to a lot of it. We still didn't get to everything, but that's what next week is for. That's why there's a next week. We are in the dog days of Star Wars summer. We sure are. We sure are. Um, More coming up next week, so you have to uh, tune in and see what is on the docket as this ever-unfolding saga continues to reveal itself. Um... I want to remind you, you can get more Rebel Force Radio through Patreon. Get RFR All Access. You'll never miss an episode of our bonus content. Shows like RFR Rush Hour, RFR Rewind, RFR Q&A. Plus, we've got giveaways, early access to Rebel Force Radio events, and so much more. That's all available to you at patreon.com slash Radio. Big thanks to our sponsor this week, Tops. And the Star Wars Card Trader app, they got some great new things, including some classic action figure card backs for the yes. first time. Yes, and working uh, with Rancho Obi-Wan to bring those to the Card Trader app. Yeah, that's right. Steve Sansui, he was uh, pretty excited to tell me just a couple of weeks ago that Rancho Obi-Wan has been working with Tops and the Star Wars Card Trader app. And uh, so what you're actually seeing with uh, some of this, uh, the write-ups and the photography 
his uh, actual stuff from Steve Sansweet's collection and from Steve's desk. So, wow. uh, <laughs> yeah, great stuff. Great stuff. Yeah. I'm, I'm punching up the uh, the app right now, and it's, uh, what is it, updating or something? But uh, we're always uh, looking at the uh, Star Wars Card Trader app all the time and looking for your trades, too. So just uh, search for us, username Rebel Force Radio, and uh, I try to uh, complete your trade uh, no matter what. So we're always hmm. looking for good trades on the Card Trader app. Uh, you can uh, email us. We'd love to read those at uh, show at rebelforceradio.com. That's show at rebelforceradio.com. Voicemail line, 708-3201-RFR. That's 708-3201-737. Follow us on Twitter at Rebel Force Radio, at Jimmy Mac Radio, at Jason Swank. We're also available on Facebook at facebook.com slash rebelforceradio. That's the only place on Facebook where you can find Rebel Force Radio. Also, the official website for all things and everything. RFR, RebelForceRadio.com. Check out our store. We've got Rebel Force Radio t-shirts in there. And, uh, of course, all proceeds go to make this show happen. We appreciate that very much. You can also find us on iTunes. You can uh, subscribe to Rebel Force Radio Podcasts as well as review Rebel Force Radio Podcasts. As far as those reviews go, just one rule, please. Make them good. And we are an official friend of Wikipedia. Visit them for the ultimate online Star Wars encyclopedia at wikipedia.com. You can also find us streaming online at wgnplus.com, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, just about anywhere else you can find podcasts. You'll also find us weekly written up at jedinews.co.uk, yodasnews.com, and the official website for Star Wars, starwars.com. Well, until next week, we'll see you. For Rebel Force Radio, I'm Jason. I'm Jimmy Mack. And remember... Force will be with you. Always. It's a wrap! I'm in!